Disney fans and other homosexual pedophiles are rejoicing over the Child Sexual Grooming Corporation's new entertainment agenda. Disney CEO Bob Chapek announced the new agenda after a meeting with 17 angry LGBTQ Disney employees who claim to represent a majority of Americans who work for Disney and are gay and have a thing for kids. In a statement read to the press by a giant cartoon mouse known as Steamboat Willie, along with several other aliases on the National Sex Offender Registry, Chapek said, quote, When I took the helm of this company, I made a deep personal commitment to maintain political neutrality so that we could continue to produce good, clean entertainment for families around the world. But after talking to a few angry nutbags, I've realized I'm a puling moral coward and will instead drag this entertainment empire into the flaming muck of demonic perversion and evil. I hope this won't keep anyone from visiting our famous amusement parks where many, many children have had a wonderful time without being molested. I would even say a majority of them, although, of course, that's just an estimate, unquote. Instead of producing fairy tales that delight the young with magical events and iconic characters, the new Disney will concentrate on introducing children to the concept of sexual difference in order to corrupt their innocence, confuse their morals, and induce psychosis so that they butcher their bodies and pretend to be the opposite sex for a few years before committing suicide. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said he would introduce a bill to outlaw such pornographic Disney content in his state, but Democrats around the country came together and universally mocked the bill by calling it the Don't Say Gay Pedophile Corrupting and Butchering Children So They Can Kill Themselves Act. Democrats hope this campaign for tolerance and diversity will inspire their one remaining voter to go to the polls in November, assuming he's been released by that time. In keeping with their new agenda, Disney will be changing the tone of their animated films. For instance, the next Princess movie will be called Princess Hank and will feature the song Let It Go, Let It Go, Can't Hold It Back Anymore, sung by a guy wearing a raincoat and nothing else. Disney executives say a transsexual princess film will serve a great need within the company, which was running out of identity groups to pander to with their crappy pandering princess films. Disney employees will also be transforming the area of the park known as Fantasyland so that it'll now represent their fantasies instead of yours. For instance, on one famous amusement, Mr. Toad's car will take children on a wild ride and then return empty. It's a Small World After All will be renamed Hello Little Boy, Would You Like to Pet My Puppy? And children of all ages will be invited to enjoy the ride called Peter Pansexual, a joke I ruthlessly stole from Gerard Baker of the Wall Street Journal because it was too perfect not to use. The new Disney agenda will soon be introduced around the world, except in China, where the Communist Party prefers to keep their children mentally strong and healthy so they can grow up to invade America and crush and enslave the decadent pansies of the West, whereupon Disney will revert to clean family entertainment. Or else. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, we are back. We, I was hoping to move on from the culture wars today, but I just can't because some of the folks on the old right, the pre-Trump right, are saying such stupid stuff that will really hand our children over to these predatory leftists, and we don't want that to happen. Uh, you know, thank everybody for uh, 
buying The Truth and Beauty. It made it up to 64 on the Amazon list, which makes it the best-selling book about Jesus and the British romantic poets in all of human history. Uh, it's now on sale. You don't have to pre-order it. Please go on and get it. If you haven't gotten it yet, I, you know, I don't want you to go to hell for all eternity, and this will save you. Uh, I, I just want to read you a couple of the reviews, very brief. Uh, one on Amazon, which said, uh, I have never read a poem outside of grade school and do not call myself a follower of Christ, but the, this book has put me on the cusp of reading and belief. Uh, and the, I got this letter from a lady named Sarah, a very intelligent lady. I had a brief exchange with her because I wanted to ask her permission to read part of it on the air. Uh, she skipped to the back and read the epilogue. And this is what she said. I, she said, I read the epilogue three times and cried and cried and couldn't help but say aloud, Jesus, the truth, beauty, thank you, and God bless you. Powerful reactions, Buy the Truth and Beauty. It's on Amazon. I don't know if we can get it higher than 64. It's starting to sink now a little bit, but if you can get it up there into the, uh, you know, into the top 10, it will be an official miracle. They will actually rewrite the Bible on your behalf. Also subscribe. They won't rewrite the Bible for this, but please subscribe to uh, the podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Apple Podcasts is good. Leave a five-star review. That's extremely helpful to the show. And of course, subscribe to my personal channel on uh, YouTube, the Andrew Claven channel on YouTube. We release uh, special exclusive content there. If you ring that little bell, uh, you'll hear a little ringing in your ear. That will continue for the next 15 years until finally you just go insane. Uh, but this week, I think we're going to be playing Elden Ring. We'll, we'll release a video on that. You don't want to miss that, so ring the bell and leave a comment. And if your comment on YouTube is sufficiently hateful, bigoted, racist, sexist, any, any of the phobics, uh, we will include it on the show because it'll fit right in. Uh, today's comment is from Aldo Cardenas, who said, I came and subscribed after your interview with Megyn Kelly. I really enjoyed it and found it very interesting. Thank you for the great work you're doing. Oh, well, thank you for that, Aldo. And, and thank you to Megyn Kelly. She was so lovely and so nice uh, on her show. And it was a, a wonderful interview. It was almost two hours long, uh, but just a, an excellent conversation. She is an extraordinarily uh, talented broadcaster. She really is. So I don't know about you, but I occasionally browse in incognito mode, or I used to until I realized it's actually not as incognito as you think. Why would it be? Chances are the browser you're using has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. What do these big tech companies say when they're called out for collecting user data? Incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? I use ExpressVPN. I use it all the time on all my devices. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. And best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. I can use it, so it must be. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash Claven and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Claven. Go to expressvpn.com slash Claven to learn more. And I'll even share a secret with you. You may not know this. You spell Claven K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no so a couple of weeks ago, I made fun of Kamala Harris because of the, our vice president, as some of you may know, and 
I mean, some of you just may have tried to forget it, but I made fun of her because of this clip, clip number one. Talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. Okay, now, to be fair, we only made fun of her because she's a blithering idiot. Uh, and she's been, she's been blithering like this ever since she took office. Here's just a, a little sample of that cut, too. It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. We must together work together to see where we are, where we are headed, where we are going, and our vision for where we should be. Because we have the ability to see what can be, unburdened by what has been, and then to make the possible actually happen. Now, that may sound like complete nonsense, but it makes a lot more sense after Joe Biden explains it, which he does in clip three. To ensure that as we rebuild America, we have part of a promise. A promise. It's a promise. <laughs> Play that again. Play that again. I just wanted, I wanted you to hear that again. This is your president. To ensure that as we rebuild America, we have held a promise. <laughs> Promise. Oh, we are so doomed. We are so doomed. However, uh, you know, to put this another way, <laughs> all right, you may have seen this thing, the bell curve meme. Have you seen this? Uh, this is cut 35. Uh, the, I use this as an illustration, my latest essay for the American mind. I wrote an essay there called The Secret Knowledge, if you want to check it out on the American mind. Uh, and it starts with talking about the bell curve meme, which shows you uh, the small number of complete idiots who say something simple. In this case, he says there is a God and he loves us. And then it rises up to the top where there are a great number of intellectuals who have figured out the subtle, nuanced truth. Uh, no, science has disproven God. And then on the far end are the small number of Jedi-like wise men who say the same exact thing as the idiot. They say there's a God and he loves us. And, and that tells us, it reminds us that sometimes the stupidest person on earth and the wisest person on earth are saying the same thing. And that is why I want to talk about what Kamala Harris was saying, the great significance of the passage of time. Last week, we pointed out a trick that the left has used to make headway in destroying our culture, uh, which is this, this making it invalid to use generalization. So if I make a generalization about women, uh, everybody says, well, I'm not like that, as if a generalization wouldn't have many, many exceptions. It does. If I say motherhood makes women happy and some woman who doesn't want to be a mother gets upset as if that... Um, that generalization is somehow a personal insult, and they've used that to make the abnormal normal and the normal abnormal. Um, and I think it's important to talk about these tricks because if you look back, I mean, I think it's pretty clear over the last 60 years, we have lost every single cultural battle. When I was young, marriage was more or less unbreakable. There was really no, I, I remember the first time somebody got divorced in my neighborhood. I was in my late teens and it was shocking. Uh, children behaved fairly well and remained in their gender. Uh, patriotism was pretty much general and all of that's gone. So we've lost every single cultural battle. Uh, our, our arts are now just full of nudity and cursing and all this kind of stuff. Oh, and, and that represents our reality because in fact our lives are uh, hypersexualized and full of, um, you know, foul language and everybody curses without thinking about it, which is degrading. It is actually degrading to the national dialogue. So obviously we've been fighting the culture war 
badly, right? We've been doing it badly. So it's a, it's a good thing to talk about the weapons that the left has used so, so well. And one of those is ignoring the great significance of the passage of time. As Kamala Harris, who is clearly other, either a Jedi-like wise man or a complete moral fool, tells us, right? I noticed this actually a while ago, even before Kamala delivered the word from on high, I noticed that the left um, ignored the great significance of the passage of time when they talked about abortion. You know, th- there can be no excuse, no argument for killing children if you accept that they're human beings, right? The, the only real question about abortion is whether a baby in the womb is a human being and therefore has a right to life. And obviously it is human, it is a being, and it does have a right to life. But if you're an intellectual at the top of that bell curve, right, and you see the nuances, the little shaded places, you start to do this. Here is Peter Singer. Now, Peter Singer's a famous man. He's a professor of bioethics at Princeton University, right? This is no slouch. And I will tell you my personal non-medical opinion of Peter Singer is I believe him to be a psychopath. I think he is actually out of his, of his ever-loving mind. But he's a very respected teacher. Steven Pinker cites him and says he's an enlightened mind. And he believes that not just abortion is allowable, but also infanticide. And here's a quote from him, okay? This is this brilliant, you know, Princeton bioethicist. He says, I use the term person to refer to, to a being who is capable of anticipating the future, of having wants and desires for the future. I think that it is generally a greater wrong to kill such a being than it is to kill a being that has no sense of existing over time. Newborn human babies have no sense of their own existence over time, so killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person. That is a being who wants to go on living. That doesn't mean that it is not almost always a terrible thing to do. It is, but that's because most infants are loved and cherished by their parents. And to kill an infant is usually to do a great wrong to her or his parents. So in other words, it's not the actual killing of the baby because the baby can't anticipate anything and so can't want to live. So we confer value on a child by loving it, which is exactly the position, by the way, I held when I was argued out of my position many, many years ago, a story I've told before. But Singer argues But what happened was the fellow I was arguing with argued that there was great significance to the passage of time, that the baby has no sense of time, and yet whether he senses it or not, he lives in time as we all live in time. We can't kill a man who is asleep, even though in that moment that he's asleep, he is not capable of anticipating the future. In the moment he's asleep, why can't I kill him? The answer is obvious, because eventually he will wake up. He lives in time, even when he can't feel the time that he's living in because he's asleep, he will eventually wake up. And guess what will eventually happen to that baby? He will be born, he will live, he will love his mommy and daddy, he will learn things, he will become an individual, he will have a career, he will uh, have a wife, a child, assuming it's a guy, he will move on into adulthood. All those things will happen over time. You have no right to stop that. But Peter Singer just avoids the great significance of the passage of time. And another way the left ignores the great significance of the passage of time is to strip us of our traditions in order to destroy our achievements. They use it like that because it is in our traditions that we become who we are. So when somebody pulls down a statue of Thomas Jefferson, he is pulling, because Jefferson held slaves, he is pulling down a statue of the very man who taught him 
to hate slavery, who taught him that all men are created equal. Without Jefferson, he, the person tearing down that statue, wouldn't know it. So what he's doing is he's ignoring the great significance of the passage of time, which is what creates our morality. As I say in my book, The Truth and Beauty, which I hope you're ordering as I speak, morality is fashioned in the forge of centuries. It's a thing of iron that will melt away in too much heat. Our traditions carry the wisdom of the dead, and we lose that if we don't understand the great significance of the passage of time. And it works in the opposite direction, too. By ignoring the great significance of the passage of time, the left leaves out progress. They ignore progress. They talk about the relations between whites and blacks as if they're just the same as they were during Dem- when the Democrats enforced Jim Crow, or just the same as they were when the Democrats held slaves before the Republicans, namely in the person of Abraham Lincoln, freed those slaves. They act as if they're still the Democrats of old. Well, they are, they, of course, in their attitudes, but they ignore the progress and they basically say the radical things that we did before have to move on with radical change now, ignoring the great significance of the passage of time. But there is one way, and this is important, there's one way that leftists understand the great significance of the passage of time more than conservatives do. The smart leftists the long game leftists, the leftists who took over our universities, who took over our television stations, who took over Hollywood, who took over our academies, who took over virtually every cultural outlet so they now control places like Disney. It only takes, you know, 10 gay people to go in to, and bully the CEO because he's afraid of uh, ABC News and NBC News. He's afraid of being called a don't say gayer. He's afraid of being called homophobic, a word which means absolutely nothing, which has no reference to any real thing. There are no homophobes. There are no. There may be people who dislike homosexuals for ethical reasons or religious reasons or just because they don't like them, but they're not homophobes. That's a, that's a uh, propaganda word that the left uses and they, therefore the media regurgitates. And that's why the CEO of Disney cowers before a minority of his employees who want to sell sexual abnormality to children. That's why. They understood, these leftists understood, the people who made that happen, who took over those institutions, understood the great significance of the passage of time, that each victory is a victory. You don't have to win the whole game right away. You don't have to be pure. You don't, everything you do doesn't have to be a total, total success. You don't have to necessarily, I mean, I remember we had a chance to reform uh, immigration law during the Trump administration, but the conservatives wouldn't let it happen because it wasn't reforming it enough. But the left understands that every victory is a victory. You know, these guys did not undermine our culture every night no- overnight. It took them fit 60, 70 years. We're not going to take it back overnight. We have to win each game. We move the ball downfield. Sometimes the guy we elect isn't perfect. Sometimes he makes mistakes. You support him if he's moving the ball downfield. If he's not a Mitt Romney type who's just actually doing nothing, he's just kind of look he looks like an old-fashioned Republican, but he's actually just a Democrat in drag. You know, if he's not that guy, but some of these guys are just moving the ball a little bit. You got to take it. Every victory is a victory. And that is, you know, you have to put your faith in that. You have to put your faith in the future. You have to put your faith in God. And you have to put your faith in the great significance of the passage of time. So remember when inflation was transitory? Uh, It's transitory forever. And one area we see inflation more than ever is in the grocery store. Prices for beef are only going to get higher as summer approaches. Your favorite cuts will be harder to find. Lock in your price and your supply 
with Good Ranchers right now. Once you subscribe, your price never goes up, making Good Ranchers the best way to inflation-proof your meals. Shop Good Ranchers for all your beef, chicken, and seafood needs. Good Ranchers only sells 100% American meat from local farms and ranches. Their pre-trimmed and pre-marinated chicken breasts are absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. Plus, their packaging, or easy for my wife to prepare, she makes it look easy, and their packaging makes it easy to cook what you want and save the rest, which keeps you from wasting anything. Their animals are ethical raised, sustainably sourced. They do things the right way, and it shows in every box. Get your 30 buck discount on prime steaks and better-than-organic chicken today. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Clavin to save on the quality you've been looking for. Good Ranchers takes the guesswork out of the grocery store by sourcing everything from local farms and shipping it to your door. Use my code Clavin. Enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your 30 bucks saving. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers American meat delivered if... You know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So we're talking about losing the culture war, how to lose the culture war, at least how not to win it. And I, I go out of my way not to attack uh, conservatives, not to attack Republicans even, because of Reagan's 11th commandment, thou shalt not attack your fellow Republicans. I think we have to work together. I, have, I think we have to accept that there we need some rhinos in the, the purple states and all that stuff. I'm not a purist of any in any sense. But at this point, I think that something has to be said about some of these old right, pre-Trump, non-culture warriors who have lost every fight we've had for the last 50, 60 years and are still giving advice to the rest of us on how to fight this fight. And it, it, it has to be responded to. This is a, what's happening in Florida, in, on the, in the media, throughout this country is a vicious attack on the sexual formation and the consciousness formation of our children who are our charges given to us by our God and they, have, they are not there. You know, Thomas Sowell, likes to say that sometimes the issue is not uh, right or wrong, but who decides? And it's very clear who, here who decides. It's not Walt Disney Company. It is not any big corporation. It is not the teachers in school, some of whom may indeed be groomers who actually took those jobs to get their hands on children. That's the way it looks to me from some of them on TikTok, some of the things, the crazy things they say on TikTok. It's not the government. It is the parents. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about parental rights. And it's true no matter what, you know, I don't, I don't care whether somebody dresses up as a woman. I really don't. But when he tells me that I have to call him a woman and refer to him uh, by his, his stated pronouns and I have to lie about my sense of reality, then it's my business. That becomes my business. You know, I, I've always talked uh, highly. I've worked with so many gay people, had friends with gay people. Obviously, my son is gay, you know, but they separated from the pedophile portion of the gay community when they were fighting for marriage rights. And these guys are still out there. This is still a problem in the gay community as pedophilia. Not all gay people are pedophilia, not the same thing, but these guys are, and they have no right to get their hands on our children. It, this is about parental rights, right? So David French. Now I've I've joked about David French that he has now got is now so wrong that even the commas in his sentences are incorrect. <laughs> but to to give David his due, he he was attacked viciously by some of Trump's supporters. I think some of his kids are uh, black, and I think he just was attacked in ways that, in my humble opinion, were unchristian, un-American, unmanly. They were unforgivable. They were unforgivable, and I don't uh, I don't blame David for being angry. But you know how a few weeks ago I was saying to you, if you get so angry that all you do is react 
to other people that they've won. And a lot of people got angry at me about that. They were saying, well, you're kind of, you know, condescending to my anger. I have a right to be angry. I know you have a right to be angry. I, I understand. I understand how hard it is to let your anger go. I believe me, I understand. I'm not, it's not like I'm talking without experience of these things. I'm telling you that in order to fight the fight, you need to fight. You have to let the anger go so they don't define who you are, and they don't define the battlefield. And I think David French has gotten so angry that at, at, at Trump that he has lost his way. He has lost his way. And so he now says, he tweets this. He says, you know, I, I reacted to the don't say gay meme, which has nothing to do with the Florida bill, keeping these uh, uh, teachers from grooming children. I reacted by saying, okay, groomer, right? That was my joke. I don't know if I made that up. I don't know if I said it first. I actually don't. Somebody else could well have said it first. I'm not taking credit for it, but I was. I, I, I made it up from my point of view. I didn't hear it from anybody else. David French, not talking to me specifically, says the slinging of the word groomer or insinuations of sympathy for pedophilia by the same people who spent years standing for the man who appeared in Playboy video centerfold, Donald Trump, Play, uh, Playmate 2000, Bernola Twins, is just too much. So that argument is you can't protect your children from pedophiles and grooming if you voted for Trump. That's the argument. That's the argument that David is making. That is nuts. And that is letting, that's what I mean by becoming reactionary and letting anger define you. This is what they are doing in these classrooms, these people who are complaining, I don't get to tell children about my boyfriend. Teach them math, teach them English, shut the hell up about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your life. You know, that's not what you're there for. You are there to teach these kids and you're doing a crap job of it. Our, our kids in America do not know the history they should know. They don't know the math they should know and they don't read well either. But even worse to me is this, and I don't know this guy personally. I'm not attacking him personally. This is a guy, Nate Hockman, a fellow at NRO, National Review Online. He's got, he was at the Claremont Institute uh, Publius uh, Fellow, which is a very prestigious and really good thing. So I'm not attacking him, but here's what he says. <laughs> Broad... Remember, the issue here is they, Ron DeSantis got a bill to stop these teachers from doing what they're doing. It's just a bill ensuring that parents have rights over their children's sexual formation. They called it the Don't Say Gay Bill. Me and others, I'm sure, called it the Hey, uh, OK Groomer Bill. He says, Nate Hockman says, broadly speaking, left-wing teachers aren't grooming kids. Gender ideology in school isn't the same thing as pedophilia. The mainstreaming of these ideas on the right is a great way to lose an otherwise very winnable culture war issue. And yeah, we know how good NRO is at winning the culture war. It makes us sound, it makes us sound like the crazy ones. The vast majority, this is unbelievable. The vast majority of the inappropriate sexual gender identity instruction in schools is driven by ideology, a harmful, destructive ideology to be sure, but an ideology that many people sincerely believe. Those people are wrong, but that doesn't mean they want to diddle kids. No, you know, nobody says they want to diddle kids. They want to prepare kids for a world in which they will be diddled and that will be normalized. And there's no question about that. Why are you teaching a kid in kindergarten? Why are you showing him gay pornography? Why are you teaching him that watching pornography is a way to learn about sex? Why are you teaching him anything about sex? Of course they're preparing children for a world in which children are sexualized. And if, if groomer, if calling them groomers and calling them out it even just underlines the creepy wickedness of what they're doing. Of course we should do it. Who cares if they think we're the crazy ones? Is that what I'm supposed to care about? I'm supposed to care about whether these sick bums think I'm crazy? 
you know, they, we have spent so long worried about whether we're going to look dishonorable or we're going to look mean or we're going to look, we're not going to be quite boxing by the Marcus of Queensbury rules while these guys are in a knife fight, <laughs> you know? It's like they say you can't bring a knife to a gunfight, but we're bringing fists to a gunfight, right? I don't believe, I don't believe that because they do horrible things, we should do horrible things, but they fight tough and smart and we should fight tough and smart and sitting around and not calling them groomers when that's what they're grooming. And this idea that their sexual abnormality and their sexual deviance, which is what it is, is, is sincere, that they're normalizing this is sincere. All evil people are sincere. Maybe some evil people are hypocrites, but a lot of evil people are sincere. You know, what difference does it make? Oh, yeah, we're sending you to the gas chambers, but I mean it, you know? I really do think Jews are bad. What the hell kind of an argument is that? And it just, it is just appalling. It is just appalling that they don't want to let people who understand the culture better than they ever have fight the culture wars in a cultural way, because this is how culture wars are won. They're won with language. Let me show you how the left fights the culture war. Here's uh, Brian Stelter talking about this. The talking point on the right is about protecting kids from the dangers of the Walt Disney Company. Really. But Disney is just a, a stand-in. It's just a symbol for something bigger. A conservative backlash to growing acceptance of gay and transgender people. A conservative fear that traditional beliefs are being trampled on. And there are entire networks that program to this fear and many politicians that react to it. That's the story here. I spoke with a Disney executive who's caught in the middle of it right now. And they said, you know, Disney's brand for decades has been family friendly and has been gay friendly. And that hasn't been in conflict. That need not be in conflict. But the media organs that profit from conflict are on a crusade now, working overtime to demonize Disney, claiming the company is indoctrinating and sexualizing children for, through movies and TV shows. <laughs> all right, now, first of, all, first of all, the first thing you have to notice is he's hiding behind Disney. Wonderful Disney. How, what could be wrong? How could you attack Disney? Disney is not Disney anymore. Disney is the left in a Disney costume. And so that's the first way they fight the culture war. We can't be, uh, uh, we can't be dissuaded by that, certainly. Then he comes out and he says, well, a Disney executive says, we've been gay-friendly and family-friendly. Those aren't in conflict. And he, Brian Selton then says, they aren't in conflict. A Disney exec is going to tell me what is what moral conflicts to present to my children. Brian Stelter, who works at a, a at CNN, a corporation where everybody but him has been basically bounced because of their sexual deviancy and their sexual misbehavior. They're the ones. TV is supposed to explain to us what our morals should be. Disney is supposed to explain to us what our morals should be. Instead of parents, mom and dad figuring out what they want to teach their children, who cares what they think? And then he says, then he says, oh, these right-wingers are sitting around thinking there's some kind of agenda to come from Disney, of all places, to come after our kids. Here is Disney executive producer Latoya Ravenel from the Chris Rufo tapes, cut 34. Our leadership over there has been so welcoming to, like, my like not at all secret gay agenda. And so like, I, I feel like I felt like it was, I mean, like maybe it was that way in the past, but I guess like something must have happened in the last, like, like they are turning it around, they're going hard. And then all that like momentum that I felt like that sense of, I don't have to be afraid to like, let's have these two characters kiss. Let's in the background, like I was just wherever I could just basically adding queerness. 
<laughs> Why would we think they have an agenda? Okay, groomer. Oh, I, sh- oh, I shouldn't say that because I might interrupt, you know, she might interrupt grooming our children uh, for gayness and queerness with, uh, you know, by thinking that I'm crazy. I don't want to do that. Here's an article from the New York Times that tells you exactly where all these people stand. It is a wonderfully, wonderfully dishonest, but possibly self-deceived. It poss- it's possible that the person isn't lying. The writer's Jill Cohen, Sean Hubler. I don't know if that's one person or two. Uh, it says, flurry of new laws move blue and red states further apart. Now, I just want to point out that you get tomorrow's news today on The Andrew Clavin Show. I told you this was going to happen, that we are going to have a moral separation, not just a economic separation in the states. And that's a good thing. And it will speed up. It will speed up if the court has the guts to overturn Roe v. Wade. So listen to this really carefully. Isn't the New York Times talking about this? After the governor of Texas ordered state agencies to investigate parents for child abuse if they provide certain medical treatments to their transgender children, giving children hormone blockers and butchering their bodies is, in fact, child abuse. California lawmakers proposed a law making the state a refuge for transgender youth and their families, taking away a parent's uh, rights and taking away the child's rights, certainly. When Idaho proposed a ban on abortions that empowers relatives to sue anyone who helps terminate a pregnancy after six weeks, nearby Oregon approved $15 million to help cover the abortion expenses of patients from out of state. As Republican activists aggressively pursue conservative social policies in state legislatures across the country, liberal states are taking defensive actions. See, we're the aggressors in the culture war. They didn't, they're not doing anything radical by saying that they should teach our children that, they're the, that they might be the wrong gender, by saying that they should teach our children not to follow their parents, to hide from their parents. So we'll give, you can come to school in a boy's clothes, but you can tra- change into your girl's clothes here uh, without telling your parents. That, that's normal. That's normal. It's, it's radical, offensive culture warrior stuff to try and stop them from doing it. They're just taking defensive actions. Listen to how far they are willing to go. This is the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Xavier Becerra, in front of Congress, uh, cut 27. For the record, you favor HHS's funding being able for, to, for sex reassignment, for surgeries on minors. I will do everything I can to defend any American, including children, whether or not they fit the categories you have mentioned or not. And if they talk about gender-affirming care, I am there to protect the rights of any American. And, and what if the parents don't want to? He has cut 28. Mr. Secretary, do you think that parents who believe in two genders only should have their children removed from them? I believe in supporting and protecting transgender youth. I believe that they, along with their parents and their uh, caregivers, will make the best decisions. And I would really urge that politicians like you stay out of their business. Wow. Wow. He can't say that he wouldn't take a child away from its parents if the parents think that there are only two genders. Of course, that's where they're going. Of course, they're sexualizing our children. Of course, they're grooming them. How can you not fight that with everything, everything you've got? We're going to sound like crazy people. They are crazy. They are crazy. I don't don't know if there's anybody left in authority who is not a loon. I really, I mean, these people have lost their minds. They are dragging us in to their sick fantasies of what the world is supposed to be. And by the way, I say this without animus toward anybody who wants to dress up as a woman. I certainly say it without animus to gay people who have always been some of my best friends and my respected colleagues. This is not about this. This is about taking away the parents' right to set 
the moral standards in their household for their children. And by the way, there is literally 0% science that grooming kids for changing kids for transgenderism is healthy. You know, uh, Jesse Single is a reporter on Substack, uh, and he's, he's points out that there was an article called Mental Health Outcomes in Transgender and Non-Binary Youths Receiving Gender-Affirming Care. It was published in uh, JAMA Network, open late in February. In their study, the researchers examined a cohort of kids who came through Seattle Children's Gender Clinic, and they found out how this went. The headline of the emailed version of the press release reads, Gender-Affirming Care Dramatically Reduces Depression for Transgender gender teens study finds. But when Single goes into the study itself and looks at the numbers, he finds that that is entirely untrue. Among the kids who went on hormones, there isn't genuine statistical improvement here from baseline to the final wave of data collection. At baseline, 59%, 60% essentially of the treatment naive kids experience moderate to severe depression. 12 months later, 56% of the kids on uh, gender assignment experience experienced moderate to severe depression. At baseline, 45% of the treatment naive kids experienced self-harm or suicidal thoughts. 12 months later, 37% of the kids. These are not meaningful differences. The kids in the study arrived with what appear to be alarmingly high rates of mental health problems. Many of them went on blockers and hormones, and they exited the study with what appear to be alarmingly high rates of mental health problems. And I think that they will get even higher over time as they start to realize that this stuff cannot be changed. I mean, this is an amazing thing. And you tell us that we shouldn't say groomer, that we have to watch what we say. We have to watch what we talk about. What is your track record? What is your track record? Old right. Before Donald Trump, before Donald Trump stormed in and taught us that you have to be able to stand out enough, you have to be mean enough, gross enough, grotesque enough to fight back against these people. And, and you know I have my problems with Trump. I never hesitate to criticize Trump when, it, when I think Trump deserves to be criticized. That's not the point. The point is he changed the game culturally, and that's why he was elected. He was elected because, you know, the elites don't care about decadence. I am an elite, and I can tell you, I don't care how many people are gay because it's not really going to change my life, okay? It's middle-class people who have to uh, keep their morals intact because if they don't keep their morals intact, they won't be able to rise. It's always the middle class who are the defenders of morality because they know that success depends on morality. Once people get to a certain level of success, they're pretty safe. Their immorality is not going to hurt them. Donald Trump is a billionaire. No. Has he acted in a sexually moral way? No, he hasn't. But if if you behave badly in the middle class, you will sink into the lower class. And that's why a strong middle class, which is what socialism destroys, is really important to the moral health of a nation. For 50, 60 years, the the rank and file of this country have been told their religion sucks, their country sucks, their country is racist, they're racist. Their philosophy is homophobic. It's this phobic, it's that phobic. If you think it's bad that Muslims are blowing up your buildings, well, you're Islamophobic. Whatever you think, whenever you think that there is a moral line to be drawn, you're on the wrong side of it. You think there should be a border, you don't like Mexicans. They've been hearing this for 50, 60 years. Your God doesn't exist. Your religion is small-minded and sick. Nobody fought back. Nobody fought back, and certainly these elites in the in the Republican movement did not get it. They thought, oh, it's all about business. It's all about Ayn Rand. It's all about if you can build a business, you're going to be happy. They let these people's values and their lives and their aspirations be mocked and attacked, and only Donald Trump taught the Republican Party that if you don't fight back, you're going to lose 
forever. Trump taught him this, and now we know, and these old guys who said, you know, I want more people, I want more Republicans who sound like Mark Robinson, the North Carolina lieutenant governor. I love this guy. This is the voice of America as far as I'm concerned. He was given a speech in a church, and he just started saying, uh, what did he say? He said, uh, ain't, ain't nothing, there ain't but two genders. There ain't but two genders. Play cut five. You can go to the doctor and get cut up. You can go down to the dress shop and get made up. You can go down there and get drugged up. But at the end of the day, you were just a drugged up, dressed up, made up, cut up, man or woman. You ain't changed what God put in you, that DNA. I don't care because it's time for us to stand up. Now I'm not afraid to stand up and tell the truth about that issue. They're dragging our kids down into the pit of hell, trying to teach them that mess in our schools. Tell you like this, that ain't got no place at no school. Two plus two don't equal transgender. It equals four. You need to get back to teaching them how to read instead of teaching them how to go to hell. <laughs> I'll take this guy. I'll take this guy over uh, Nate Hockman and David French any any day. I, I really will. He's the voice of America to me. You know, this is this is the way. We cannot be afraid to say what we say. We cannot be afraid to know what we know. We cannot be afraid to point them out and call them out for what they're doing. And guess what it is? It's grooming. Okay, groomer. All right, by now, if you've been listening to this show, you already know that Ring makes a doorbell that lets you talk to anyone who comes to your house, uh, no matter where you are. You probably also know at this point that Ring makes an alarm that is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. But now Ring has gone pro with Ring Alarm Pro. Ring Alarm Pro is a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. And after using it, I know you will think they are right. Ring Alarm Pro helps protect your entire home and the Wi-Fi it runs on. With Ring Alarm Pro, Ring combined a home security system and a Wi-Fi router. So this thing helps protect your home and your network. You will have a secure network with a great strong signal for all the devices across your home. And I know if you're anything like me, you got a lot of devices. With a Ring Protect Pro subscription, which is an amazing deal, by the way, you get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. If anything happens, professional monitoring will call and can request emergency services. You may not have known, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm and has gone pro with Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Claven. That's ring.com forward slash Claven. Get Ring Alarm Pro. So if anybody comes near your house, you can ask them on your phone, how do you spell Claven? If they know, set off that alarm. One of the most important things to remember in this culture war is that we are the revolutionaries. They want to make it seem like we are the aggressors, but we're the revolution. They are the empire of lies, as I've said many times, they're the empire of lies. We are the continental army popping up from behind trees and rocks and firing at the massive wave of redcoats as they come in. And this has been true for a long time. The only difference now, the only difference now is that some of us, apparently not all of us on the right, know we are in a fight. We are in a fight with scurrilous, dishonest, corrupt, 
not just corrupt people, but corrupt institutions. This is the important thing. When an institution is corrupt, when a, an entire profession like American journalism has become corrupt, you yourself can be a tremendously nice person and you will still be corrupted simply by acting within the framework of this corrupt institution. The thing that uh, the left likes to say about systemic racism, which makes you racist even if you're not racist, is nonsense in America, which is constantly improving and has been constantly improving. But in the journalism business, it's absolutely true. There's systemic corruption in the journalism business because the journalism, which used to be uh, small competing enterprises, is now huge corporations, which are on board with anything that's going to keep them in money, whichever, anything that's going to keep them virtue signaling, anything that's going to keep them being attacked by the press who is o- that's owned by other big businesses. We've seen them cover up uh, Me Too. We've seen them cover up for Harvey Weinstein. We've co- seen them cover up uh, for, you know, all, all the people on the left who do the things that they accuse us of doing. This Hunter Biden laptop story that is now, you know, continually coming out is a huge story. And we know it was suppressed during the election, during the Trump-Biden election. It was not just suppressed, but remember, you know, even though the New York Post did a good job of bringing it out, it was Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson who started to bring it out in Congress. Uh, And Kim Strassel writes about this in the Wall Street Journal today. When they came out to talk about it on in Congress about what this meant that Hunter Biden was peddling influence and that this laptop seemed to connect Hunter Biden with Joe Biden, the big guy who seemed to be getting some of this money and was certainly in the know about some of this stuff, despite the fact that Joe Biden was lying about whether he was in the know. Here's what uh, Kim Strassel writes. Panicked Democrats defaulted to the scurrilous claim that the Republican senators were spreading Russian disinformation. Top Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mark Warner, Adam Schiff, top Democrats on the House and Senate Intelligence Committee, in July 2020 publicly released a letter to the Federal Bureau of Investigation expressing worries that Congress had become, quote, the target of a concerted foreign interference campaign, that they were spreading Russian disinformation. So now, now it comes out that no, this is legit. The New York Times says it's legit. I don't know why we should let this former newspaper confirm the good work that the New York Post did, but even they are admitting it. I suspect they're admitting it because a uh, an indictment is coming down the pike and they don't want to get caught, uh, you know, with nothing but their pens in their hands uh, when this happens, still claiming that all of this is nonsense. So now... They hold a conference at the, uh, I think it's at the University of Chicago. It's hosted by Atlantic Magazine. It's called Disinformation and the Erosion of Democracy. And Ann Applebaum is there. And this is important, okay, because Ann Applebaum was a fine journalist. She was an excellent journalist. Uh, She wrote wonderful books. I think she was uh, Polish-American or maybe possibly Polish and became American. Uh, But anyway, she wrote wonderful books about the Soviet Union and how bad it was. And I remember when I was kind of, without knowing it, kind of moving from the left to the right in England, I remember reading an article she wrote saying that kids who walk around with T-shirts with Che Guevara on them or a hammer and sickle on them are just as bad as people who walk around with a Hitler T-shirt or a Nazi symbol. It's just as evil. And I thought, wow, that is actually really true. So this is not somebody uh, that you can disregard. She's confronted by this freshman. And listen to this exchange between him and Ann Applebaum. So in 2020, you wrote, those who live outside the Fox News bubble do not, of course, need to learn any of the stuff about Hunter Biden, referring to his laptop, of course. Uh, A poll later after that found that if voters knew about the content of the laptop, 16% of Joe Biden voters would have acted differently. 
Now, of course, we know a few weeks ago, the New York Times confirmed that the content is real. Do you think the media acted inappropriately when they instantly dismissed uh, Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation? And what can we learn from that in ensuring that what we label as disinformation is truly disinformation and not reality? I mean, my, my problem with Hunter Biden's laptop is, I think, totally irrelevant. I mean, it's not whether it's disinformation or, I mean, I don't think the Hunter Biden's um, business relationships have anything to do with who should be president of the United States. So I, I, didn't fi- I don't find it to be interesting. I mean, that, that would be my problem with the, that as a, as a major news story. <laughs> it's not interesting. The young man's name is Daniel Schmidt, uh, obviously very promising, and he's going to be uh, working here at the Daily Wire. And of course, after that, his career will be over. Now, I want you to think back to the idea of the old reporter in the snap rim hat in the movies with a press card, right? Because I was a reporter back in the day, right? I was a newspaper man. I was just talking to an old friend of mine, one of my oldest friends who was a newspaper man with me. And we were saying, you know, if we even saw somebody walk into the sheriff's office who was involved in government, we started thinking, why is he in there? You know, we were curious about everything because we knew that corruption was everywhere. Here is a story. Here's a story. The president of the United States was writing letters recommending that highly placed Chinese, uh, the children of highly placed Chinese uh, government officials uh, was, you know, uh, Joe Biden for Hunter Biden was writing letters of recommendation to elite schools. This is part of what the Chinese call elite capture. They were capturing Joe Biden through Hunter Biden. That's not interesting. I'm bored. I'm bored by that story. (laughs) This is is a good journalist who has been corrupted by being in this corrupt environment. So now we know. Now we know they will not just lie. They will not just suppress. They will not just censor. But they will then lie and suppress and censor after the fact. They will continue to say, they'll gaslight us and continue to say, that's not an interest. Ah, the president of the United States' son is influence peddling and he was involved with it and some of the money may have been gone to him. I'm not interested in that story. I'm not interested in that story. You know, again, again, I just want to say to the folks on the old right, the folks who sympathize with the old right, the folks who hate Donald Trump so much that they have lost their way, and I don't blame you for having problems with Donald Trump, but if you hate anybody so much that you suddenly think that anything that he says is right is wrong, if you do not join in this cultural fight, you have lost your way. I say again, I do not want to become the left. I don't want to become a censor. I don't want to become an oppressor. I don't want to you know, take people out and hurt them or throw them off uh, websites or anything like that. I I don't want to become the left. I want to defeat the left. I want to defeat them down to the ground. I want to pound their philosophy into dust and then grind that dust into the dirt from whence it came. I cannot do that with people just, complain, oh, you have to play nice. You have to be nice. You have to say this. You have to say, you have to get it. Your criticisms have to be exact. Don't look bad because then they won't like you. Nonsense. Nonsense. You know, I want this thing destroyed. It has hurt this country badly. It is now after our children. It has to be stopped. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm lonely and I can't go see anyone because my car is not running. Well, you can solve both problems at once by saying rockauto.com. When you say rockauto.com in that deep, growling, manly voice, women come out of the woodwork. They love that stuff, and they know that you can get all the parts you need to fix your car right on your computer. You don't have to go sit in your car and pretend to drive down to the car parts store and talk to some schnook who isn't even there because you're not really there because your car's not running. You can just go on rockauto.com and get the parts you need from all kinds of manufacturers at a price you can afford. Prices at rockauto.com are always the same, whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or 
A Pro, and you've got a wide selection. It is an easy-to-use catalog. They've been doing this for a very long time. So say rockauto.com. You'll probably find a girl and your car will be running. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or your truck. Write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know how I sent you. They know I sent you, and they'll know I sent you if you say it that way. If you say Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. So with the book coming out, The Truth and Beauty, uh, you know, I forgot to put it up. You know, it has to be here constantly to remind you of itself because, you know, you might forget uh, to order it at, on Amazon. And then, of course, um, you know, you will go to hell. So you don't want to do that. But it's the truth and beauty, how the lives and works of England's greatest poets point the way to a deeper understanding of the words of Jesus. Uh, it came out this week on Tuesday. It was published. Uh, and it has been a big week for me. I, I got to tell you, it has not been an ordinary week. It has been extraordinary. I have been talking. You can hear my voice is a little worn out. Uh, I have been talking ceaselessly. I've been talking to really some wonderful broadcasters. I mean, I talked to Megyn Kelly. I mentioned before Charlie Kirk. Uh, I was on Timcast uh, uh, with Tim Poole. Uh, he was terrific. That, a great group over there. Really fun to be there. And uh, uh, and again, Megan was just a, as lovely as she could be to me. Uh, just really nice. And we had a great conversation about the book. But it's hard work, you know, and I, you know, I, I love doing it. I was happy to do it, but it, it took me away from my usual work, which is writing. And I was out there kind of going from place to place. I was at a lot of uh, religious outlets and uh, was writing other things for other religious outlets. And, um, and you know, it, it's, it's tiring and it's involving, but it's not, and it's not the thing that I normally do. And in the middle of this, uh, so I, because of this, I'm, I'm going to indulge myself a little bit and let the cultural section be a little bit um, personal this time and a little bit more about me and about the truth and beauty. Um, because in the middle of all this, in the middle of one interview after another, and I, I sometimes, some days I didn't even go outside. I didn't even get out of my chair uh, a couple of days. Uh, I certainly missed lunch, I think, uh, three days uh, during the week. And, um, you know, as I was going, the one thing I did have to do is I had my piano lesson. I think I've mentioned before that I'm taking piano. And I'm not trying to learn how to really play the piano well. I'm just trying to learn how to t tinker with it and kind of understand it and kind of understand music more. And I love learning new things, but I also love music and I love playing the American Songbook. And I have a wonderful teacher. I just think she's absolutely great. And I noticed that when I sat down to do my 20 minutes of practice, because that's all I could fit in, how happy I became. I was suddenly incredibly peaceful and happy. And I was thinking about that. And I was just remembering, just remembering for a minute uh, how much I love the arts, how deeply I love the arts. And I've told you before that all your joy comes from love. Not That's not true of me. It's true of everybody. Uh, and the things that you love, the bigger they are, the more joy you get. So, you know, I love doing puzzles. I get a little joy from that. I, when you love people, when you love God, you get immense joy. The arts are somewhere in there, up toward the uh, high end. And I just love music and painting and especially, of course, storytelling, writing, uh, films, TV, all the ways that we tell stories. And the reason I love them so much is because they are examples of the theme of the truth and beauty, which is the collaboration between our souls and God's creation, our souls being the part of God's creation that continues uh, creation. And one of the chapters in The Truth and Beauty is about uh, the meeting or the important meeting between Wordsworth and Coleridge. Uh, Wordsworth had been a radical 
during the French Revolution. Uh, he had come back from the French Revolution when it got dangerous to be an Englishman in France. And uh, he was deeply depressed. He came back and he tried to be a radical in England, but England was uh, really cracking down on radicals because they were afraid that the revolution would spread and that the English king would be under threat, as in fact they had murdered uh, the king of France and the queen of France. And so they were afraid it would spread. So they were really cracking down, putting people in prison for saying revolutionary things. And so Wordsworth couldn't really say the things that he wanted to say. And he became, and he started to realize that the revolution was a mistake. And he was one of the few. I mean, just like today that nobody, nobody on the left wants to say, oh, socialism was a mistake. It, it's about time that somebody said that they just threw out that idea. But nobody wants to say, oh, the Soviet Union fell. Oh, Cuba is enslaved. Oh, Nicaragua was, was enslaved. All because this philosophy is wrong. Nobody wants to say it. They keep reselling it. It's not liberalism. It's leftism. It's not leftism. It's progressivism. progressivism. Nobody wants to just say it's wrong. Well, Wordsworth did say it was wrong, and he was depressed. He thought, now, what do I do? And he wasn't a great poet at the time. He wasn't any kind of a poet at the time. He wanted to write poetry, but he wasn't writing poetry. And one day, he looks up, and hopping the fence to his house where he's living out in the country is Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the most brilliant man alive. And they spend the next year walking in the hills uh, around uh, this part of England. Uh, there's a place now called the Coleridge Way where they walked uh, together, and Coleridge just talked incessantly. This man who actually believed in Christ, who believed that Christ was important uh, to what they were trying to do to the to, the, to respond to the failure of radical politics. Uh, they, they were going to need to understand Jesus more. Coleridge was a preacher, and the two of them talked. And when they talked, it meant that Wordsworth was listening because Coleridge never stopped talking. And so they listened. They spent a year talking, and they produced this revolutionary work called Lyrical Ballads, which changed the history of English poetry and really reinvented the consciousness of the West for a new time. And I'm not exaggerating about that. It was a new statement of how to respond to the West now that the church was not, the Catholic church was not in charge of everything. Now that people had stopped or were losing their faith in God. Now that science was replacing superstition, all these things required a new consciousness, just as we require a new consciousness today, uh, living in a world where we are all hooked together so instantaneously and information is pouring out at us and we're in this internet world, this metaverse world that we're entering. We need a new way to preserve the human humanity of our consciousness. What Coleridge believed is he believed that the imagination, which was a technical term, and I'll explain it in a minute, the human imagination was a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am, right? It was a representation in the, a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. So the infinite I am, God creates the world, and our minds, made in his image, continue that creation through our finite minds. And Wordsworth ultimately came to believe this, and it's what made him the great poet that he was. It was talking to Coleridge that made him the great poet that he was. And years later, Wordsworth would write that through interaction with our mothers through the great act of the great spiritual act of motherhood, not just giving birth, but nurturing your children, bringing your children into individuality. This is why I speak of it so highly. He said, that was what made you an agent of the one great mind. So you could create both creator and receiver, creator and receiver both. In other words, you're receiving information from the world, from God, and you are then bringing it back out of yourself, creating, working as he said, but in alliance 
with the works that he beholds, working in alliance with the works that he beholds. So if you're in a man's body and you say, I am a woman, you are no longer working in alliance with creation. You are working simply within yourself. And if you work simply within yourself, and I can say this because I did it for many years before I started to realize that there was a God, if you work in yourself, you can only say the same things over and over again. It's only your trauma repeating itself. It's only your life repeating itself. It's only the philosophy you already have repeating itself. It's only when you become what Jesus said, which is a branch of the vine, when you become part, an agent of the one great mind, as Wordsworth said, when you become a repetition of the eternal act of creation and the infinite I am, that you become original, that you start to say fresh things, new things. Now, why am I talking about this? I write for a living. I'm an artist. I think it's fair to say, whether you think I'm a good artist or a bad artist or a mediocre artist or whatever, I have lived my life as an artist. And you could think, well, what's this got to do with me? I'm not an artist. And that's what I mean by the imagination being a technical term. We all have an imagination. It is the completeness of our uh, impression of the world. It is the complete experience that you are having is your imagination. When you walk down the street, no one has had that experience before. Not one person ever has had that experience before. Not one person ever will have that experience again. The experience of you walking down the street. And so you are creating the world. You're not creating it on your own. You're creating it in alliance, right, with the one great mind. You're creating it as an agent of the one great mind and as a repetition of the one who created it to begin with. So you have to see it clearly. You have to see it realistically. But once you see it clearly and realistically, and we're just talking about walking down the street, right? Once you see it clearly and realistically, it becomes something original because it's yours. Nobody has ever felt that way before. No one has ever noticed that flower in the crack in the sidewalk before. No one has ever looked into your child's eyes and loved them the way you loved them before, or your wife's eyes, or your husband's eyes. All of these things are original and new to you, and they are acts of creation. You are creating them with your imagination, which is the totality of your receptive self, the totality of the of the self that takes these things in and then puts them back out again. And obviously, I've been talking about a lot of this in interviews, sometimes trying to make it as uh, you know simple and acceptable as I possibly can, sometimes with more complexity. Next week, I'll be on Spencer's show, my son Spencer Clavin, no relation to his show, The Young Heretics, and he and I will talk about it at you know an, another level because he and I are both kind of been talking about this uh, since he arrived on the scene. And when we stop, you know, having this interaction with the one great mind, everything we do is then dead. It's just a repetition of ourselves over and over and over again. Now, in the old days, in the old days, the act of creation that an artist just represents, right? When I write a story, you, you can see when I write a story, you can see creation coming out of me in a new way. It's harder to see it when you're doing it. Art is supposed to remind you that you are doing this too. You are a work of art. You, your impressions are a work of art. And a work of art is supposed to remind you and inform you and, hope and hopefully enlighten you about how that works and what that means. And, and it's supposed to deepen your perceptions of the world. That's what a good work of art does. And that's why Hamlet in Shakespeare's Hamlet talks to the actors. And this is what he says. This is Laurence Olivier playing Hamlet. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action. With this special observance, that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold as twere the mirror up to nature. 
hold the mirror up to nature and don't overstep its modesty. In other words, don't overstep what nature can do. Nature can't turn a man into a woman, so don't tell it that that is what it's doing. It's not doing that, so don't tell it that it is. Don't tell it that, you know, what cannot be is simply create what you see, right? Do it, he says, don't, you know, don't, uh, what does he say? Do pronounce the words trippingly off the tongue. Don't overplay it. Don't overplay it, which is good advice for all of us. Now, this was conceived of as the idea of what an artist does to hold the mirror up to nature. But of course, each one of us is a different mirror. Each one of us is a unique mirror. Each one of us sees the world in a different way. And the romantics, these romantics that I'm writing about in The Truth and Beauty are often said to have changed the stature of the artist and to transformed art from a mirror into a lamp. That's the phrase from a great critic of the Romantics, M.H. Abrams. He said they transformed art from a mirror in which you saw nature to a lamp in which the spirit of the poet of the, or the artist illuminated nature. And that is where you get this overblown idea, this overblown idea that artists today have of themselves that they are going to change the world, that something about them is just so important. I don't know if you remember that speech that David Harbour from Stranger Things, he played the sheriff in Stranger Things, and of course Trump was president, and oh, they were going to bring down Trump, and here's the crazy speech that he made. And I would just like to say that in light of all that's going on in the world today, it's difficult to celebrate the already celebrated Stranger Things. But this award from you, who take your craft seriously and earnestly believe, like me, that great acting can change the world, is a call to arms from our fellow craftsmen and women to go deeper and through our art to battle against fear, self-centeredness, and exclusivity of our predominantly narcissistic culture and through our craft to cultivate a more empathetic and understanding society society by revealing intimate truths that serve as a forceful reminder to folks that when they feel broken and afraid and tired, they are not alone. We are united in that we are all human beings and we are all together on this horrible, painful, joyous, exciting, and mysterious ride that is being alive. <laughs> You're an actor. You're an actor. You read other people's lines, hopefully convincingly. You know, you really, all of these people have to return back to Socrates, who, when he was told he was, there was no man wiser than he, he said, everybody's wiser than me because I don't know anything. And he went to all the famous people who thought they were wise and he realized they didn't know anything. And of the poets, he said, the poets showed me in an instant that not by wisdom do poets write poetry, but by a sort of genius and inspiration. If you are not a branch of the vine, if you are not hooked into God, if you are not being honest about what God is telling you, if you're not being honest about creation, you ain't creating anything. You ain't creating a life. You ain't creating art. You're you're not doing anything and you are not changing the world at all. I love the arts. I am become disgusted with artists because they think they are more than what they are. They are not, we are not creators. We are bearers of fruit when we are branches of the vine. I love the arts. The arts will come back. They are in a terrible, terrible lull because of this leftist stupidity, but they will come back. I hope this is my little contribution that will help other people love the arts and see that the arts are uh, a repetition in the finite mind of the act of creation of the infinite I am. 
All right. Well, usually at the subscriber break, as we call it, we like to talk about some of the things that are going on at The Daily Wire. And this week's break is uh, an ad for The Truth and Beauty, which I've been talking about and will talk about throughout the show. So I won't go into it again, except to say thank you so much to all of you who have already bought it, to all of you who will buy it, and also to the God King, Jeremy, and all the folks at The Daily Wire for the support they have given this book, uh, to Ben as well. Uh, you know, they don't have to do it. Uh, the Daily wires and making money off my books, but they do it anyway uh, as an act of love. And I so appreciate it. I cannot tell you. The book is The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. If you haven't bought it, please do go on Amazon or wherever you get your books and buy it. You will like it. It will change your life for the better. So many of you, I'm sure, remember the uh, death of Breonna Taylor uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, during when police were executing a warrant. Uh, she was shot. There followed protest, the usual protests and riots. Uh, Sergeant Jonathan Mattingly was there, and he has written a book about it called 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Breonna Taylor raid. It is meant to correct the media misinformation, and it's published by Daily, Daily Wire Books. Here is a, a brief trailer for it. It was very chaotic. It was very quick. Instantly, I knew I was shot. Breonna Taylor, she was caught in the crossfire of those bullets. As soon as your brain's registering, it's already over. The media got so many things wrong in this case, saying we had the wrong apartment. Her name wasn't on the warrant. She was shot and killed in her sleep, in her bed. These are lies. This is not true. And all the while, you're hearing all these outside influences from athletes and Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, all those people coming and attacking you, putting your name on their account saying he should be in prison. All these things that they have no idea what they're talking about, but they have such influence. The more we attack police for doing their job, the less good qualified police you're going to have. When you read 12 Seconds in the Dark, you will find out the truth of what really happened the night of the Breonna Taylor raid. There is just a, no question that police are being alienated. Crime is going up. Uh, John Mattingly, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate being here. So this book, before we get to the actual meat of the story, this book was actually supposed to be published somewhere else, wasn't it? Yeah. Post Hill Press uh, out of Nashville was going to post it originally. And um, when uh, word leaked that the book was coming out, uh, they started getting just totally just attacked and threatened and their employees were doxxed and threatened. Simon and Schuster got, you know, pelted with all these crazies. And, and so they, they, they're so woke. They were like, ah, we're not touching the book disregard. We're going to cancel it. And, uh, that's when daily wire stepped in and said, Hey, we're not scared. We'll take it. So we were like, heck yeah, let's do this thing. Let's go. That's great. I love, I like to hear that story. Uh, so Leading up to this incident, what, what was your career before this? What were you doing in the police? Well, you know, I started out like any other officer on late watch for five years. Uh, then I went to a flex platoon, which is a small division-wide um, narcotics unit. From there, I got promoted in 2009, went back to late watch for a year, then went to a detective's office as a sergeant for about a year and a half. And then I went to what was called our violent crime unit, Viper. And uh, we went after murders, uh, robbers, you know, the worst of the worst in the city. Uh, from there, I went back to our major narcotics unit, and in 2020, I was over. I had gone just left our major case unit, uh, which worked with the DEA and FBI and, and ATF, 
And I had gone to our parcel interdiction unit because I was planning on only being around three or four more years. And I wanted my career to kind of slow down so I could, um, you know, get used to normal civilian life again somewhat before I retire. Because there's so many guys that are going 100 miles an hour and then they just retire and they're like, oh, what do I do now? And uh, I didn't want to be one of those guys. I wanted to kind of slow down because I've been I'd served over 2000 search warrants at this time where I've gone through doors. And and so, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking everything in life's kind of a numbers game. So um, I might be running out of that luck. So I'm going to back off of this and go to something a little easier and, and deal with boxes because they don't shoot at you. They don't fight you. They don't do all that. But uh, little did I know that volunteering to help this one night, these individuals would just totally change the course of my life. But, you know, God's been good. And we've found uh, the positives out of this and taking it. And, and we're, we've been able to help a lot of people so far. And hopefully this is just the beginning. Hopefully we'll be able to use our experience, uh, both myself and my wife, because our family was deeply affected by this. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to take that and just continue to bless other people with it. Well, can you, what, what was this raid about before you actually got there to the scene? How did you get involved in it? And what was, what were the police investigating? Well, like, Two or three weeks outside, the, the unit that was investigating this, uh, we were all encapsulated inside the same uh, unit, and um, which was our criminal investigations division. I was in narcotics. They were in a unit that went after just areas that, that had constant complaints or problems. Um, it was a program we had just started. The department just started based out of a program from Cincinnati. It was place-based investigations. They were going after just individual targets, very precision-like. So they had been working on this for about two and a half months. Um, they were going to serve five warrants that night, which when you do that, it, it entails a large amount of bodies. So it's manpower intensive. And so they needed other units. So they reached out. Um, I was already working that day and working up until about the time of the brief that was scheduled. So I said, hey, I'll help. doesn't matter. I'm already out. I'll, I'll pitch in and help. And so the, this group was selling heroin, fentanyl, um, uh, methamphetamines, a little bit of weed. But the main thing was their hardcore drugs. And uh, we had had a ton of deaths, just like nationwide. In 2020, there was over 100,000 overdose deaths from these exact type drugs, especially the fentanyl-based products. So we were out there to help them try to clean up some of the streets of Louisville by getting this organization put out of business. And unfortunately, Brianna had been dating one of the guys off and on for several years that was the, one of the main or the main player in this organization. Now, do I think Brianna Taylor was ever physically taking narcotics, handing them to people and receiving money? No. But I do believe, and we do know that she was holding money for these groups, for these individuals. She was using her place of residence um, we don't know what were, was in those packages, but there were packages de- delivered there that Jamarcus Glover would show up. We've, they've got pictures of him going in with nothing, coming out with packages, and going straight to the trap house, which is the the house that they sold. It was a couple of vacant properties on Elliott Avenue that they would take their narcotics and sell it all day long to these junkies and and you know spread havoc on the neighborhood. And then they would leave. They would go back to their home and sleep. Hmm. And so Brianna was tied into it. Uh, in a way, I don't know if she was being used. I don't know if she voluntarily did it. I know her family background and makeup was one of chaos and and not very healthy. So I think she was just kind of falling into those same footsteps. So when you use the phrase a, a trap house, that's the place where the business is going on. Nobody's living there. That's an actual Correct. drug den, essentially. Correct. Yeah, it's just a rundown piece of property that um, they can come in and basically squat at. Okay. Now, I think one of the guys may have been renting it, but uh, properties in that area rent for four or 500 bucks a month. And when you've got 
a cash business like they had, you know, that's, that's nothing to them. But yeah, it's, it's a, it's a place that people come and, um, they had, they had raided this, these particular houses a couple of times prior to this. And every time gotten large amount of narcotics, several weapons, illegal weapons that these guys that are all felons weren't supposed to have. Jamarcus Glover had actually just been locked up at that address in January of 2020 for guns and narcotics. And Brianna Taylor bailed him out and used her address as his address. So there was a bunch of tie-ins. It, it, you know, people ask, well, why did y'all go to Brianna Taylor's house? Well, she was part of the organization. You know, she may not have been out there slinging the dope, but she was still part of the organization. There's always behind the scenes people, and she just happened to be one of them. So did, were you raiding the trap house or were, were you raiding her apartment? Well, all, all of them. There were oh, five warrants okay. that night. Got it. There were uh, three of them served simultaneously, the two on Elliott and the one on Springfield, which was Brianna's location. And so while SWAT was hitting the ones on uh, Elliott, we were in charge of the one on Springfield because it was supposed to be um, originally it was signed as a no knock, but once they realized they had a tracker on, uh, Jamarcus Glover's vehicle, they had a ping on his phone. Uh, they were getting eyes on him as they located where he was through those devices. And they realized he wasn't going to be at Springfield. He was going to be down on Elliott. So therefore it took the, the elements of a no knock and they were no longer valid. We could still have done it because it was signed by a judge, but, but ethically it wasn't the right thing to do. So we didn't do it. We went back to the normal knock and announce. We were actually asked, Hey, since we think she's there by herself, give her extra time to come to the door. Because typically it's about 10 seconds. You're banging, announcing police search warrant before you you have to physically force the door open. We gave her about a minute <laughs> and uh, we didn't have any luck. And that's when we we were forced to, to enter because SWAT simultaneously was hitting Elliot. And the problem, people say, well, why did you why didn't you wait till the morning? You know, to go there. If she was by herself, if, if she wasn't a, quote, physical threat, why, why, did, why didn't you wait? And uh, the answer is pretty simple if you understand the game, because the the word of mouth, the ghetto net, now with the Internet, everything travels so fast that while we're hitting Elliot, she's going to be getting phone calls on Springfield saying, hey, they're hitting your boy's house. It just happens every single time. And so therefore, evidence would have been moved. Evidence would have been destroyed. Um, so that's just that's the way these operations work. Well, that's already a very different description than the description I remember reading at the time, which was essentially you yeah. served a no-knock warrant on this apartment where people were just sitting around eating popcorn and watching Netflix. Uh, describe the raid. What what did you experience that night? Well, when we went up to the door, you know, the whole night, by the time we went to do the raid, it was Friday the 13th. It was raining. It was a full moon. Um I had ran across these these young EMS drivers that were there in case anything went wrong. And my kids were older than them. And I'm looking at them going, and I actually told one of the guys on scene, I said, I hope these guys aren't the guys saving our lives if something goes bad. <laughs> well, there they were. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we, we get it. We pull up to, this, to the door. We go up. Uh, there's seven of us in this stack, which usually even on these type apartments, there's 10 to 12. But we were just, you know, we were drained manpower wise. So we we acted with what we had. Um, seven of us were at the door. Uh, two of us were on the left side of the door. The rest were on the right side of the door because we were in a breezeway, which was very small, had a metal staircase going up to the right of the door. Um, so you couldn't fit a lot of people in there safely because tactically you cannot stand in front of a door because there's been so many instances where people just shoot through the door while somebody's banging on the door. So we're, I'm standing to the side, I'm banging, I'm yelling police search warrant, super loud. At that point, an upstairs neighbor comes out because he hears us yelling and like, what are y'all doing? They're addressing him saying, go back in the house because they don't know if he's a threat or not. We don't know who knows each other in this apartment complex. 
So they're they're giving him commands to go back into his residence. Um, he finally uh, cooperates, goes inside. We keep banging. We keep yelling. At one point, the guy that Mike Nobles, who's doing the ram, says, wait a minute, I think I heard somebody moving around inside. So we stopped. We listened. I didn't hear anything. I yelled again, please search warrant. Come to the door. We got a warrant. Please come to the door. I mean, this is over and over. And this isn't just talking. This is yelling. You could, If you're inside a house, you can hear us. And that's what got them out of bed. It gave them time to get dressed, him to retrieve a gun. As we knocked the door open, I remember being able to see the right side of the living room before I stepped into the doorway. I was able to clear it or visually to make sure there were no threats to my right. So as I stepped into the doorway to, to look down the hall or to the left in the kitchen, um, as soon as I stepped there, I was I saw two figures at the end of the hall basically overlapping one another. They were together. Uh, one head was taller, one head was shorter. So my mind automatically went male, female. Um, but everything happened in milliseconds. I mean, by the time I turned I was able to visually see them. My eyes went straight to the gun that Kenneth Walker had pushed out. Um, Boom, he shot. It was over. I returned fire four rounds so he would get out of the way, quit shooting, whatever, just to to eliminate the threat. Uh, At that time, he dove into the room because this was a very narrow hallway. You know, everybody, the, the things that were put out just were so skewed. And had I not been there and had I not known the true facts, I may have thought differently as well because our department and our city never rebutted any of the lies or any of the, any of the, the false statements that were put out. So for a year, all these false narratives that she was asleep in her bed, that we had the wrong apartment, that Jamarcus Glover, the, the other boyfriend was in custody. All these things were inaccurate, but we couldn't say anything. So when he shot and I returned fire, he dove out of the way and left her right there where he was standing. So unfortunately, she tried to follow him into the bedroom and received the rounds that were coming down range. And, um, you know, it was tragic. It was sad that it happened. Nobody wanted it to end that way. We thought, I mean, you never want to let your guard down, but you're thinking, I'm going to a female's house who has no criminal history. Doesn't mean they've never committed crimes, but doesn't really have a criminal history. So this should be fairly easy is what you're thinking. So when, when that all took place, you know, um, your mind just goes quickly. In 12 Seconds in the Dark, the name of the book, was where we got this. From the time that door was pushed open to all the chaos that happened, all the bullets that flew, the time I had to get out of out of out of the crossfire and into the parking lot until it became eerily silent was about twelve seconds. So yeah. it was a it was a dramatic scene. I, ha- I have to say, I mean, this is one of the things. If you have, as I do, a, a kind of morbid sense of humor, it is funny when you hear guys like Joe Biden say, well, why can't the police just just shoot to wound like the Lone Ranger used to do on the old 1950s television show? I mean, you're talking about this kind of chaos and darkness. So so basically, police were returning fire when when she was killed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, We didn't initiate it. We were just protecting ourselves. Yeah. So and you were you were then shot yourself, right? Yeah, and you talked, you know, you had a perfect segue into it. You talk about, just shoot him in the leg. Well, I was shot in the leg. Yeah. And it ripped through my femoral artery, ah. and I almost bled out on scene. Had yeah. they not, you know, the first thing I did was grab my leg, and I was like, oh, this isn't a regular leg wound, because I've seen those. You know, I've seen hundreds of those. And they bleed a little bit, but, you know, typically people can even hobble around on them, no big deal. Well, this one, not only did it rip through the muscle, but then it deflected and, and ripped through my femoral artery. Yeah. And so when I put my hand down there, I had a handful of blood and I thought, oh, this isn't normal. So instantly I was yelling for the guys as I'm hobbling out before I fell to the ground was like, get a, get a tourniquet. I need a tourniquet because so I eliminated the threat at the door. And then my next step 
through, this is all through training because you can't, you know, naturally just do this stuff. So you eliminate the threat and then I'm thinking, okay, now I've got to survive. I've got to get a tourniquet on. Then once the tourniquet got on, I was like thinking, all right, now get me to a hospital. Cause I don't want, I don't want to lose this leg. So all these things are taking place and, and, you know, you hear different stories about people and the way they react and physiologically and different people that night on scene reacted totally different. Some guys shut down, some guys went into action, some guys, you know, everything, just everybody's built differently. Uh, but I was very blessed that God kept me a clear mind that night and I was able to explain what I needed. I was still giving commands while I'm on my back to people to do stuff. And that, you know, that wasn't me. That was just God and training that kicked in. And, and so I've been very blessed through all this. You know, the, the attacks on on you, I, I mean, I, there's stuff that I was reading uh, to prepare for this conversation from the New York Times and other venues basically saying this was an ill-prepared, no-knock warrant, nobody said anything, nobody, you know, they, suddenly you just swarmed in on people uh, who were really, and Breonna Taylor was completely kind of separated from any of this. Now, you looked at this and you said, this is not uh, George Floyd. This is not some of these other uh, events that have happened. Right. When you see these other events, do you feel that there's any justice in what the people are saying, that they're, that uh, black people specifically are under fire from the police in an unfair way? Or do you feel that that's simply a, a matter of the where the crime is? Well, it, that's a matter of where the crime is. You know, I, I did this for 21 years. Um, my daughter's married to a black guy, and I've asked them before and since, you know, is America really as racist as, as everybody's saying? Because I didn't see it on the street. I really didn't. Um, and my daughter and son-in-law are like, we've never been attacked for being in public as a, as a mixed couple. Yeah. And so I'm going, you know, this isn't 1960. When I hear this stuff, like straight and I went back and forth because he's like, he's been pulled over one time, one time for speeding. And he's like, well, I wasn't speeding. It was just because I was a, a black guy in a nice car. And I said, well, Michael, do you ever speed? No, I never speed. I went, well, then you're lying because we all speed. I speed. <laughs> Everybody speeds at some point. No, I don't. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not going to win this battle. So then he's like, well, well, black people just feel like this happens. I went, okay, well, we all feel stuff. It doesn't make it factual. It doesn't make it the truth. Just because you've been, you know, we all have biases. I won't, I won't dismiss that. We all do. However, we were raised. Fortunately, I was raised in a very poor end of town that had black, white. Uh, our church was very diverse. So I was fortunate enough to see all these different aspects of life. And I think it made me a better police officer because I was able to understand different cultures. And, and that's what this all boils down to. With crime, you've got a cultural issue. You just really do. And white people aren't allowed to say that, I know, but I'm going to say it. So it's true. Because I, I lived it for 21 years. I saw it firsthand. And, you know, you could go to different ends of towns and the successful black people we dealt with, they just thought different. They didn't have the victim mentality. They didn't have uh, the woe is me. And But let me say this. In the hood, you've got a lot of good people who just don't know how to get out. Um, and they want out. And I would say 80% of the people in those areas yeah. are good people. Sure, uh, They're just trapped and they're getting pushed around by the 20%, kind of like the country's being right now. Yep, yep. Uh, John Mattingly is the author of 12 Seconds in the Dark, a police officer's firsthand account of the Breonna Taylor raid, published by Daily Wire Books when other people copped out and wouldn't do it. I really appreciate your coming on. I only got a chance to read the first couple of chapters of the book. It's, it's really well done and very excitingly told. And it's amazing to compare it to the accounts at the time and even the accounts that are still up on Wikipedia, uh, which are not at all 
uh, like what you're saying, which is <laughs> just very obviously a, an accurate account. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Andrew, I appreciate you having me. It was great talking to you. So about this time, some of you may be smelling something strange. It kind of sound, smells like rotten eggs. It's sulfur. Uh, and that is because the Clavenless week is approaching, uh, and so there will be, you know, sulfuric fires and brimstone and wailing, gnashing teeth, broken glass. You know, you know the whole thing. And, uh, you know, those of you who have survived it before, uh, you're not going to survive it again. But before we get there, there is hope. We will solve all your problems. So you will enter your final week uh, just feeling great. We will do that through the mailbag. Woo! To ensure that we rebuild America, we have held a promise. <laughs> <Yeah>! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I hope this guy is president for life, uh, which would only be another couple of weeks, probably. Uh, all right. From Anonymous, Dear Hot Gandalf, Lord of the Bald Multiverse and Regular Multiverse, as a fellow man who regularly thinks about women's bodies, I knew you would be the best person to give 100% correct advice to my situation. I lost my faith as a young man. Let's just say I spent my latter teen years and most of my 20s surely acting like it. It wasn't until a series of very infor- unfortunate non-PG events that caused me to turn my life around. Uh, since then, I have gotten sober, got a real job, got married, and am navigating my ever-changing spiritual worldview. Nevertheless, gen- generally speaking, my life is back on track. I won't get into too many details, but years of listening to you and the other Daily Wire hosts played a big role in my redirection, except for Knowles. Uh, while I am very hap- happily married and have a wonderfully fulfilling sex life, I can't shake the stereotypically masculine desire for sexual variety. I wouldn't even say it's a feeling of the grass is always greener. I know it's not greener. It's just different grass. And I'm frustrated because I know firsthand how unfulfilling, shallow, and horribly damaging casual sex is. Sex with my wife in the confines of marriage is better on every level, but I just can't let go of that desire for sexual variety. So I guess my question for you is, assuming I'll never be fully rid of that desire, what has been your best method for either redirecting it or at least not allowing it to take an unhealthy hold over you? I look forward to your answer changing my life, even though nobody knows if it will be changed for the better. Sincerely, Clavin is funnier than Walsh. <laughs> well, at least, you know, at least you you got that right. So that's that's good. Uh, yes, you are suffering from a, uh, a terrible disease called being a human male. Um, it, it's fatal, but hopefully not for another, you know, 50, 60 years. Uh, and in the meantime, it does present you with this problem. This is a big problem, and especially, you know, uh, younger, but it's, it remains with you. I'm not going to pretend that it goes away. And I can actually tell you something about it. I can tell you about it because I, too, am in a very, very fulfilling, uh, in every possible sense, marriage. Uh, my wife is the, the star of my life. She just is, you know, the, the sun and the moon and the stars to me uh, and fulfills all the roles so beautifully. Truly, she does. I'm not just uh, saying that so that she lets me back in the house. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. And yet, and yet, even today, uh, the, these, this is a problem. So here's what I can tell you. In the beginning of my marriage, I struggled not to be swept away by other women in any moment of, you know, of a temptation. And I worked in Hollywood. I worked with many beautiful women. I knew many beautiful women. I was very successful. Uh, and it was, uh, th- th- that opportunity was around. And I struggled not to do it, uh, using any trick I could, reminding myself that I would, how destructive destroyed I would be if anything bad happened to my marriage or if I hurt my wife in any way. I reminded myself of all those things. But over time, you know, over a few years, I started to realize that 
there was a positive sign that I was struggling not to do something, but I was actually doing something. I was actually achieving something. It wasn't what I was not doing. It was what I was actually doing, the positive thing that I was doing. And that is that I was becoming a faithful man. I was actually operating in fidelity. And I started to realize that there were great joys to that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let me just say that I have always found in disciplining myself that the positive aspects of what I'm doing are more important to me than the negative aspects. I'm not trying to drink less. I'm trying to enjoy life more. I'm trying to sleep better. I'm trying to be uh, able to read in the middle of the night because I didn't have a couple of drinks before I went to bed. I'm trying not to feel bad in the morning. Uh, I, I'm trying to feel healthier. Uh, I'm not eating less. I'm actually trying to get healthy to be uh, slim and in shape and all that stuff. And the same thing was true here. I changed from trying not to uh, cheat to trying to be faithful because the the gifts of being faithful, the joys of being faithful are insanely great. Uh, they are the joys of knowing that you are who you say you are. They are the joys of other people, the people you love and who matter to you, knowing that you will do what you say you do, that you are not hold, hiding any secrets from them, that there is nothing particularly ugly in your life that they have to worry about, and that when you, uh, if you're in a position, for instance, with your children to give moral instruction, you live by the code you are telling them about. That is a huge, huge gift to have, to have my wife know that what I, what I say is, is what I mean, that I live by what I mean, that I am not somebody who is going to betray her or hurt her uh, is a, an incredible gift. And it's not just for her, it's for all the people who know me, all the people who know over time, who pay attention to what I am and what I do and what I say, you know, my friends, even people I work with, they know that I mean what I say, that I will do what I do. That is an incredible gift. And in fact, even to, to you, even to the audience, you know that when I talk about morality, when I talk about marriage, when I talk about men and women, you know, you may disagree with me, but you know I'm not going to be arrested, handcuffed <laughs> to a bed in a Motel 6 somewhere with a girl in a leather teddy with a whip. You know, you know that that's not going to happen because I am who I say I am because I have lived infidelity. And so when you start to think that that's what you're trying to do, that that's what you're becoming, and you make the decision that even, even if you were in a locked room with no consequences that no one would ever find out about, even then you would maintain your fidelity because that's who you want to be, right? Then the decision is made. Then when the girl comes up to you in the bar, which still occasionally happens even to me, when, when the girl comes up to you in the bar, the conversation is already over because you know what decision you're going to make. And that makes things a lot easier. It truly does. It truly does. Still going to be a problem, but it makes it a lot easier and a lot easier to deal with. Uh, from Carrie, dear Mr. Clavin, we had our second child this year. Both our children have suffered unforeseen, unrelated, rare health conditions. I'm sorry about that. The new babies may cause care issues throughout his life. It's been hard for me. It's affecting my faith. I understand free will allows people to do bad things to others, but illness in children is hard to rationalize. Even the ancient rabbis couldn't figure this out. It is just a terrible, terrible thing. I find it difficult not to blame myself, even though I did all the things I was supposed to. It's not your fault. This is just part of the broken world. It is just part of the broken world. You have repeatedly said to pray out loud. I tried this for the first time. Within the next few weeks, you answered a mailbag question from a mother of a special needs child. My pastor gave a sermon about how the phrase God doesn't give you more than you can handle is wrong. Uh, and I watched Louder with Crowder episode. I chose at random and the issue of God allowing suffering was discussed. I have never before felt like my prayers were heard in this way. While I always considered 
myself a believer. I have not been especially active in faith. My family attends church regularly, but have considered it mostly something to do for our children. We enjoy the community aspect. I would appreciate any advice on how to further explore faith and make it a greater focus in my life. Thank you for helping me with my relationship with God. Well, that is something that does happen uh, when you pray out loud, not because God can't hear you when you pray silently, but because you can form your thoughts more clearly. Uh, you can you won't let your sentences drift off into nothing. You'll know what you're talking about and you will think better uh, and you will find your prayer life does expand. Uh, another thing that you might want to try is something that I have taken up recently and it is absolutely wonderful is that on one day, I, I pray every day and I pray for uh, you know at least 20 minutes, sometimes more uh, every day. And, and one thing that I have tried on one day a week uh, is there's a word for it. I don't remember it. It's in Latin, uh, but it is to meditate on scripture and it's to find a reading. I usually just take it from the lectionary. What's the latest uh, reading from the New Testament? Uh, and I read that and then I meditate on it, which is, which by which I mean I let my mind go silent, which is something you have to work at. Sometimes you can only do it for 10 seconds at a time, but however much you do it, try, you know, set an alarm, set your phone 20 minutes and, and meditate on that. Uh, and you will find amazing things are revealed to you. Pray that you, you things will be revealed to you. Read the gospels. I read them three times and then meditate uh, for about 15 minutes on it, just keeping my mind silent and sometimes just repeating one word, one line that kind of stood out to me, but just not thinking about anything. Seriously, not thinking. And when you think, the trick to when you think is to let the thought go and dissipate and go back into silence. And you'll find that that will also deepen your relationship uh, in faith. I'm sorry that you have to go through this. Uh, I'm sorry for your troubles, but God will walk through it with you. He will walk through it with you. And uh, and that will make a tremendous amount of difference. And I and I bless you, you know, God bless you. And I wish you luck with it. It is a, a tough thing with your own kids. And we have to stop there. We will stop there and the Clavenless week will fall like a shroud of darkness and pain upon you. Uh, tough. But you know what? There is a backstage this week, I think. Yeah, this week is Wednesday, so it'll only be a, a semi-Clavenless week. Uh, you're not going to survive anyway. But if, <laughs> if you do, when you come back next Friday, we will be back with The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Today on the Matt Wall Show, the latest on the murder of five infants by an abortionist serial killer in D.C. It's a story that the corporate media, the local government, federal government has decided to completely ignore, but we're not. Also, Judge Jackson is confirmed as the first black woman Supreme Court justice and also the first Supreme Court justice who can't define the word woman, a historic occasion, occasion indeed. Plus, mainstream media journalists hold a seminar on disinformation, but things don't go as they plan during the Q&A portion. And American Airlines has an exciting new aviation invention, buses. In our daily cancellation, 
What the hell is a biromantic asexual? It's the latest LGBT innovation, and it, of course, makes no sense at all. We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show.